0: South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke and Science Advisor Matt Moniz. And we are here to talk about the paranormal, as we are each and every Saturday night. And uh, I think I think we're all a little bit worn out tonight. I think we're all a little tired after last night. Any, anybody get some good sleep? Good sleep? No. no. <laughs> Me either. I, I took a 45-minute nap. Well, I thought it was going to be a 45-minute nap, but I overslept. Uh... <laughs> But literally, like, I, Moniz, we got to your house, like, what, 3 in the morning? About that. And I, I we took everything out of the car and put it into my truck. And then I go to leave, and I'm like, oh, man, I don't have enough gas to get home. And it's it's like 3 o'clock in the morning, so I had to go across town to be able to get gas. And uh, by the time I got home and, and laid on the couch, it was almost 4, and I was like, I'm supposed to get up at 5 <laughs> to go, go to work. <laughs> but that's what happens when you have paranormal events on Friday nights and uh, and we had a great one last night and uh, I, I know that some people out there have been putting up on uh, on iTunes reviews and and uh, and tweeting to us and you know they they don't they think we waste too much time talking about events we waste too much time pushing our events and talking about what goes on in our events like it's a big commercial but it's not people want to know right so and
1: everybody that was there is super excited about it
0: and we had some cool stuff happening last night at Lizzie Borden's. Yes, we did. Especially later on in the night. things it, it was slow to start, but we had some things going on. But, Moniz, I didn't even get to ask you. You you and Andy were handling the first floor in the basement. Did you guys have any cool experiences going on? Uh, Just a couple little things in the basement. But for the most part, people
2: were picking our brains about various stories and the accounts that we had in the house. They were more interested in hearing the history.
0: See, and that's kind of a fine line that you have to walk because sometimes you think you're talking too much and not giving people a chance to actually do their thing. But last night's group certainly seemed to, like, want to learn and, and know. Yeah. You know, and, and it wasn't like we were, like, standing around and being like, well, let me tell you about the time this happened. They were asking. Right. And uh, and we had, you know, a slow start on the second and third floors, but we had some people get their legs lifted in the chimney room, in the Knowlton room. And yeah. uh, I think when I came up with the the idea to... Uh, turn that closet into a psychomantium. I think that's when those two kids, <laughs> those poor guys, I think that's when they decided that uh, I was I was just there to terrorize them because when they came out of that thing for the first time, they were just their eyes were glazed over, and uh, and like I literally, I'm I'm serious, like they were so like out of it. I had to ask them, like, you guys weren't doing anything you weren't supposed to do in there, right? Like you guys, you guys weren't taking any drugs or anything, because they came out like dazed and and their eyes glassed over, and, and but it, it had that much of an effect on them. So it was like, hmm. Note to self: remember to do that again next time. There you go. Except bring bring a real like electric candle, instead of having everybody download candle apps on their phones. <laughs> but it still
1: works for for them. And have Stephanie bring real scrying mirrors.
0: No, apparently those ones were working. Apparently those. I know, those but those the ones other were ones are way hard. better. Yeah, well,
1: Way better. You can, it's a lot easier.
0: It's also a lot more risky to travel with a mirror. Nah. Yeah. Because, we you know, then you can break it.
1: I have many. We're good.
0: That's why I've never actually, I've always wanted to get a full-length mirror in my house.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: because I'm, I'm a guy, I wear a lot of wrinkly clothes, <laughs> as Stephanie can attest to you. <laughs> and like every once in a while, I'm like, oh, if I had a full-length mirror, I could just see how this looks and see if it makes sense. Not that I care about how I look, but you know, it's nice to have. Mm-hmm. And every time I'm like, I'm going to go buy a full-length mirror, I'm like, oh, but then i got to drive home with it. And I know I'm going to drop it, and I'm going to break it. <clears throat> I, was, I, I, get, I get nervous buying light bulbs.
1: <laughs> so get one of those full-length mirrors from, like, Walmart that are, like, a little, like, fun housey, but they won't break.
0: I, I, if I drop it, it won't break? I don't if, think so. Okay. I'm going to take your word for it. And if it does, I'm going drop to... Drop
1: it in the store first. I'll <laughs> throw that
0: seven <laughs> years of bad luck on you. Sounds not, good. Not that I believe in that. But do you know where that came from, by the way, that seven years of bad luck superstition? It came from Roman times, because back in the Roman times, in in the Roman era, mirrors were so expensive, they were only owned by the rich. But a rich person would never actually pick up a mirror and carry it around, so they would have the servants do it. So they made up this... Superstition to tell the servants that if they broke the mirror, they would have seven years bad luck, so that the servants would be extra careful with their mirrors. It's kind of interesting, right? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not boring anybody with that. It's a I pretty like good
1: your, story. Your weird facts.
0: It's we wrote about that book in Haunted Objects: Stories of Ghosts on Your Shelf.
1: Did you? Who'd you write that with?
0: I wrote that with Chris Balzano, who's probably <laughs> listening right now and like, yeah, plug the book, plug the book. It's stories from the book. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so I, I've never actually gone out and gotten a mirror, and I, I am afraid to, to, to drive with light bulbs. I actually I had one of those kitchen, you know, the the, the long ones, uh, and I it burnt out, and I said, I'm going to go to Home Depot and get a new one, and I went on my bike. And then I got there, I'm like, well, wait a minute, where am I supposed to put this? <laughs> because it's not going to work if I try to stick it in the saddlebag or anything. So I actually ended up, like, tying it to the back, and, and it worked. I got home with it. And uh, everything was perfectly fine, and I went to go put it inside the sink, and I, I broke it. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah. So that's, and that's, that's those are, sad story. those are like $3 light bulbs. Those aren't like, actually, all light bulbs are expensive now. Have you yes, noticed that? they how? are.
1: Unless you get the really cheap, like, pack ones that are on the bottom shelf of Lowe's.
0: It, and they're supposed to last forever, but they don't. Mm-mm. They don't last any more longer than the other ones. Well, anyway, this is, you know, we're talking about light bulbs here. It's not exactly a, a great episode. What's going on what there? What was that? Um, there's something freaky going on with the broadcaster. It's uh,
1: flashing between you and the logo repeatedly, yeah. like as fast as possible, kind of like strobe light-esque.
0: No, that is not. I see that. You know, subliminal signals. I'm just letting you know, it's oh, getting that's... a little freaky. That's pretty weird. Well, anybody that's watching on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com... Yeah, I can transition to... You can, you can try and deal with that. We'll see if we can fix it during the news break. Or you can always just listen on the Radio Pup app as well if you are streaming us from somewhere around the world uh, and you don't get the actual WBSM signal. We talk about the paranormal here each and every Saturday night. I promise that's what we're actually going to be talking about tonight, not, not light bulbs and mirrors. Uh, but uh, we are going to be talking with our guest, Seth Breedlove, coming up a little bit later on in the show. He's been on the show before, talking about the Minerva Monster, and uh, he actually has a a uh, production company called Small Town Monsters. And they the first one was the Minerva Monster that we talked about last year, and they have a new one coming out this year, the Beast of Whitehall, and then later on this year, they'll have the Boggy Creek Monster. So this this is a film series that documents these unusual events, but... They have to do with the fact that they... You know, these aren't major sightings. These aren't major ratchets of sightings. They're very isolated and very small and and very intriguing because a lot of them are something that entire towns are involved with. So we're going to talk with Seth coming up a little bit later on in the show. We'll find out more about the Beast of Whitehall, which will be coming out in April, and then we'll see if we can pick his brain a little bit on the Boggy Creek monster as well. And uh, when... We do talk to him or any time during the show. You can feel free to call in at 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers to call in and chime in with any questions or thoughts or comments you might have. If you want to do so via text, you can text us during the show at 67664. Just be sure to start your text with the letters WBSM so that it filters into our software here. And uh, those are right on the screen at the bottom. Well, it's going to be flashing, but we will have them up on the screen. Uh, and they're also on the website as well, SpookySouthCoast.com. You can email us, SpookyCrew at com, or you can talk about the show on Twitter using the hashtag spooky sc. So lots of ways to get involved with the show. We hope that you will do so. Or if you're more comfortable with it, you can just sit back and relax and just enjoy the good paranormal conversation. And before we get into things with Seth Breedlove, I want to ask you guys about an announcement that came out this week that had people uh, a little bit, uh, a lot of people were skeptical about the idea, a lot of people were crapping all over the idea, and some people were excited about it, myself included. On Destination America, they've announced that there's going to be a new show coming out uh, in April called Ghost Brothers. It's about three African American gentlemen who investigate the paranormal, but they also have a comedic twist on it as well, so while they're serious about investigating, they're not exactly serious people all the time so it's supposed to it's supposed to be a comedic look at ghost hunting with these three gentlemen right away, people are already saying, "Well, the title's racist
1: yeah, I could see that
0: and because they're not actually literally brothers, mm-hmm. So they're saying the title is racist. They're saying that it's racist to have three black guys be the comedic value of the paranormal, which I don't understand why that's a correlation, but some people have come out with that. And a lot of people think that they still are under the auspices that paranormal television is supposed to represent the integrity of paranormal research. And so they they feel like by making fun of that, they're doing the field a disservice and I, I gotta just put this out there one more time. T V doesn't care mm-hmm. if it's doing a disservice to something. Do you think T V cares about and I use T V as a you know a generalization, but do you think they care about the way people perceive doctors after watching Grey's Anatomy? Nope. Do you think they care about how the you know people perceive lawyers after watching L.A. Law. I don't know. I couldn't think of a more current courtroom. I show. think people take it a this. step
1: forward and think like, oh, it's reality TV, so it should be reality. Because something like Grey's Anatomy is obviously, you know, a drama for television, but
0: but they never call it rea. It's not reality television anymore. It's unscripted television.
1: Right. Which it it really isn't.
0: Well, it is. It's still I mean,
1: producer TV.
0: It's 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 unscripted, but it's not reality because they're not presenting it to you. Right. Exactly the way that it happened. So I, I just feel like people are so quick to lash out on these ideas. I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a pretty good. You know, we've been saying for years that the paranormal is ripe for somebody to come out and poke fun at it, mm-hmm. and that if it's done right and it's done well, there's no reason why the paranormal world shouldn't get behind it. I don't know how this is going to be. I don't know anything about these guys. I don't know anything about their their uh, about their investigations. I don't know how they're going to approach it, but... Let's face it. Some of the stuff that we've seen on these shows over the years, it's been unintentionally funny. Right. So if if the humor is already there and people are already kind of cracking up at it a little bit, what's the problem with having people go and say, all right, go have some fun with this? We do it when we investigate. Everybody that investigates, you can't be 100% serious all the time. Like
1: We had fun last night, but it doesn't make sense to... I mean, if you think about it, the paranormal is no one's livelihood. You're not making money on it. There's no careers in a field. Now, how many people make fun of lawyers all the time? How many lawyer jokes do we hear? So if you're making fun of lawyers, but they are a livelihood for people and they are a career, why can't you make fun of paranormal investigators? I, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to hurt your pocket. So,
0: I mean, think about some of the funny situations that have come up when you're out there investigating. You know, how many times have you heard... A noise and, you know, there's something unexpected, and it turns out to be something stupid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like uh, like last year at Benford Hall with me and the bat. You know, I, I couldn't actually investigate because <laughs> I was getting harassed by this bat down in the basement. But at the same time, I had one of my most profound paranormal experiences there. At the same time, when I saw the floating legs outside the window. Mm-hmm. So these are things that... <laughs> which still, I had kind of forgotten about that until Andy brought it up last night, and I was like, I forgot how much that blew my mind when I walked out (laughs) there and said, wait a minute, that would have been somebody's head walking by that window, not their Mm -hmm. legs. But anyway, so he, you know, uh, the the people who are against the show already, they're just against the cons, you know, it's anything that might be perceived as a slight against the integrity of the paranormal. You know, let's stop all being watchdogs for that at this point when it comes to television. Television's not reality even when they pretend that it's reality television. It's always going to be a stylized version of whatever happened. I don't want to say a scripted version. I don't want to say you know, any kind of rigged or planned version. It's a stylized version. And, and documentaries are the same way. We're going to be talking with Seth Breedlove in a few minutes, who makes these documentaries about these small-town monsters. Now, he's taking the case, and he's putting a stylized look on it. It doesn't mean that he's forming his own narrative with it, I mean, he's an investigative journalist. He's trying to take the information that's out there, and he's trying to present it in an entertaining and informative way. But he's not manipulating the information to do so. And I think that that's what's going to happen with this show. I think they're going to find an entertaining way of presenting it without manipulating what actually takes place and what actually happens. And I think every time that you can show this now because it's been going on for so long. There's been 10 plus years now of paranormal television, so as long as you can take that integrity that's been built up, or whatever integrity you want to say that it has to the general public, you say okay, people can now kind of understand what goes on here, so now they can understand how you can have fun around that. People understand now what goes on in an emergency room, so those weird shows on cable TV, like sex in the ER and all that stuff. Like, you can watch those shows and and understand because you already have that basis of knowledge of what goes on. So you understand that, oh, when this person comes in and this is happening, that makes it a weirder situation than what would normally take place. Mm -hmm. I was trying to avoid getting into any graphic descriptions of some of the stuff on sex in the ER, which is one of the worst unscripted shows I've ever seen. Not that I've seen much of it, but all those shows where it's like, you can tell like, they don't, they're not even trying to make you believe that it actually took place. They're like, we're just going to take this one real situation and expand it beyond ridiculousness. <laughs> so if you would like to call in again, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. Those are the numbers tonight as we are talking with Seth Breedlove. Also, if you want to check out the website for his work, it's smalltownmonsters.com. That's where you can find out about... The upcoming films, Beast of Whitehall and Boggy Creek Monster, where you can also order and view the first film in the series, Minerva Monster, uh, which we talked about last year. And, and they're still doing uh, library presentations and screenings. So you want to make sure that you check out the events page as well. And uh, and we'll also uh, encourage you to you know purchase these upcoming films online as well. You can watch them that way. It's a great way. I mean, I love this because now... We, you know, a lot of documentary films, you have to wait and wait and wait. I remember seeing commercials and, and trailers for some of these documentary films. And it's not like they're out there on the Netflix release list or on the, on the Redbox release list. So it's, I remember seeing the preview for that. When's it going to come out? I haven't seen it anywhere. Now, because of the Internet, you can order these and watch them and stream them uh, right at home. So it makes it a lot easier. All right, well, let's take a break. We will get Seth on the phone, and then we will talk with you as well. Again, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420, or text us at 67664. Just start your text with WBSM. Let's make it a really interactive night tonight. I know you're all out there listening because it's too damn cold to go out, Mm -hmm. (laughs) especially around here. Uh, We had, like, two degrees as we were coming into the studio, and it's only going to get colder, so... uh, Bundle up, jump on the couch, you know, watch on your laptop or listen on your radio. Pull a blanket or two over you and get ready for some good spooky fun. We'll be back in just a moment. Back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke and science advisor Matt Moniz, and of course, uh, as I have been telling you throughout the course of the show, you can text in with us. Uh, text into us at any point with six seven six six four. Just start your text off with the keyword WBSM. You have to put that in there because that's how you start off. Uh, you have to start the message that way because that's how it comes into us. Uh, here on our software so And we'll try to answer those questions on the air Or we can even text you back If need be uh, And it's a great way to get involved in the conversation Also on Twitter as well Where you can follow us at SpookySC And you can follow our guest tonight At Seth Breeds Love If you want to be able to interact with him going forward And, and he's a great follow Because uh, he always has all kinds of updates About the projects that he's working on And he's joining us tonight He's returning to the show to talk about uh, some new projects that they have coming up. And, of course, uh, Small Town Monsters is the name of the independent film series. It is the brainchild of Seth Breedlove. He is an investigative journalist and a director, and he joins us now on the Skype. Uh, good evening, Seth. Can you hear us okay? Yeah. Yeah. Next. And
2: if you, if you follow me, it's like an incessant uh, flow of information about everything I'm working on. So by the time... You've been following me for like a day on any kind of social media. You're ready to unfollow. So it's, it's...
0: <laughs> no way, not at all. I well, because here's why I like following you. Because it seems like when you, as soon as you send out a tweet, you get a bunch of people that are already sharing it and already telling you about some of their own stories that are coming out there. So you're going to have small town monsters to cover forever. There's going to be tons of stories to get out there and investigate.
2: Yeah, that's that's one of the coolest things about it is, like, there's this sharing of information that goes on. And people, like, people want to see their local, you know, celebrity monster covered. Um, and I've made friends through social media that, that I met because of them sharing their, their local monster with me. So it's, it is kind of fun.
0: So I know that we did have you on before to talk about Minerva Monster, but kind of just take everybody back to how it came about that you were going to start researching these creatures and, and making films about them
2: yeah um uh, the small town monsters originally began life as a book proposal that I sent to a bunch of different publishers um was unanimously rejected by everyone and um then I turned to mo- movies instead no uh it was it was more of a thing where it it had always been kind of a dream of mine to make film and um uh, to to especially to do something with uh the Minerva monster case. Um, and and we just kind of hit upon this idea of making Minerva Monster the first in the small town monster series, and and so that's how it all kind of came together. It came together over the course of about three years. I sent the initial book proposals out back in I want to say 2012. So it's been a while, but but all the research was initially done for a book.
0: Well, and sometimes though, you know, you start going down one path and you get pulled toward what's the right path and it seems like this is the right way to go because you're getting to uh when you're talking about something like these creature sightings, you could write about it all you want, but it doesn't have the same impact as when people can see the actual eyewitnesses and, and see the way that they passionately describe the experiences that they had. Right and and not just that but also
2: being able to put them in those places visually is really cool for some people cuz like when when we announced the uh the uh, the next project we're working on Boggy Creek Monster we had this announcement down in Falk Arkansas where the original movie The Legend of Boggy Creek was filmed and all the stuff and one of the things that Lyle Blackburn who who's making that movie with us said is um it's one thing to read about it but it's another thing for people to get to actually come to Falk through us, you know, and get to watch or or see themselves in these places where they probably wouldn't ever get to go. I mean, especially in a case like Minerva, where to get to the sighting locations, you'd have to actually get permission from the Caton family to get up behind their house to see where the the monster was seen, which is probably not going to happen. I mean, it's just you're not getting on their property. Um, But but in watching our movie, you could be there. And same thing with the Whitehall film. It's the same kind of, you know, you're getting to live uh, vicariously through us and still get to put yourself in these amazing places, which are, you know, really amazing. I mean, all three of these sighting spots uh, that that are the focus of our movies are in these kind of gorgeous locales um, and all uniquely different from each other while still bearing... Uh, kind of startling similarities. I think the biggest similarity I've seen in all three is that they all take place near uh, pasture land. So there's there's always like this farmer land, right, farmland right nearby where they ha- where they happen. So in in Whitehall, you've got the mountains and the Adirondacks, and then down in Falcon you've got the swamps, and and then up in Ohio, you've got kind of the hilly, you know, the foothills of the App- App- Appalachians. And um, but but yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that. Well, no, A lot I mean, of farmland.
0: I mean, you're, you're, you're connecting the dots to where some of these creatures are spotted, and, and it makes a lot of sense. But, I mean, you mentioned the Minerva monster, and, and I can tell you that in some of the productions that we've been involved in and in some of the shows that I've worked on, you know, people get all excited when you come to town to film or when they, they think that you're coming to town to film, and they get all excited, they want to help out, they want to be part of it. But then you're on pins and needles waiting to see what the reaction is. And, and sometimes it's, you know, sometimes there are people are like, oh, well, you know, I don't like the way that they did this or I don't like the way they did that. How has the reaction been to the Minerva Monster documentary?
2: Uh, locally, it's been insane. It's been absolutely unbelievable. Um, in a good way. Insane in a good way. Um, they weren't like chasing us out of town with pitchforks or anything. It, it was, we actually had our uh, festival called Minerva Monster Day where we kind of premiered the movie locally in Minerva and that was put on uh, in cooperation with the Minerva Chamber of Commerce. Um, so we showed the movie four times over the course of a day last summer, and all four showings were sold out. We showed it at a, at a uh, little local theater. The theater had no air conditioning, and it was 90 degrees on the day of the showing. So the uh, theater itself was probably 100 degrees. I'm not exaggerating. It had to have been like 100 degrees. We were blowing in air through, like, the back doors trying to get air into the theater, and people still stayed. We had standing ovations after every showing. So... It was crazy. There were about they estimated around twelve to fifteen hundred people came downtown. Um, the The town itself hadn't been expecting it uh, to be that big of a success, so they hadn't closed the main street where we were kind of based on. So you had like twelve to fifteen hundred people wandering up and down this street. The lines out outside of the uh, theater stretched about two blocks down the street just to get into the theater. Um, so, so that was chaos. We're, we're doing it again this year, um, although this year we're actually integrating, uh, like a. this was kind of my idea, but I think it's going to be really cool. We're doing a, a all-ages monster movie film festival. Um, so like anyone of any age can submit a movie uh about a monster, you know, whatever it is, claymation, anything. uh and we're going to show it on Friday night the I think the 20, what is it, 23rd of September. It's going to be later in the year this year. But so so anyway, to make it a shorter answer, yeah. The response locally has been amazing, just absolutely amazing.
0: So that and then the year 2 version uh which is September 23rd and 24th, when that happens, are these films that you want people to submit, are they do they have to be um, you know non-fiction documentary or can they be can they make up any legends
2: and yep anything anything that involves a monster so if, i mean it can be any it could be comedic horror as long as it's appropriate for people of all ages to see and then we're going to show it on the big screen and there's going to be uh prizes i still have to get together you know with with local businesses and some other people i know who i'm hoping will sponsor it and kind of throw in prizes and stuff so we're going to have a lot of cool stuff but um Yeah, that's, I, that's something I've always wanted to see done and, you know, kind of encouraging, uh, the creativity and people, especially kids, you know, and, and being able to integrate this monster idea and, you know, which as a kid, I loved monster stuff. I mean, I was like obsessed with Ray Harryhausen movies and all that kind of stuff. So, um, that is, that's, I think that's going to be amazing, actually.
0: Well and I think it's a great thing too to do for the town because now you're allowing them you're you're helping them take these uh you know these smaller more localized monster legends and turn them into their own mothman you know turn them into something that can be uh, something that they become known for and give them uh, an event that they can have become an annual tradition that will bring interest and some tourism money into their town
2: yeah and I I honestly think that the first place I ever heard about like legend tripping or became aware of like crypto tourism as a thing was on your show um years ago like like 4 or 5 years ago um and I know that was an idea that was planted in my head back then, and I wrote a blog post about it maybe three years ago, about how towns need to embrace their local monster and, and kind of embrace the idea of making these events into a thing because it draws people from from all over the state. Our, when we did Minerva Monster Day last year, um, in each showing of the movie, I would have a show of hands as to where people were coming from you know, were they all local to Minerva or was it further out? And every time it was maybe 40% of the crowd was local and then 50, 60 was from, you know, outside of Minerva. And we had people travel from Maryland and Florida and all over to come up for it.
0: I mean, that's that's uh, amazing, the fact that, you know, you're, you this is spreading around. And I like the fact that, too, that when people are paying attention to these stories, they're kind of – accidentally learning about these towns and learning about their history learning about the people of them learning about some of the geographic factors of the of the location some of the socioeconomic factors so you're actually learning about small town america while learning about the small town monsters
2: yeah and that was that was what the initial book proposal was all about was like this this idea of not just doing your typical kind of cryptid book that focuses only on the monster case but also on the community around it and then how the how the sighting affected the community because typically in a in a situation like this in any kind of um you know crypto investigative work i've seen or read it's like here's the case these are the details of the case let's move on you know to the next case and we never see any kind of fallout with what the community how they responded that kind of thing you know in minerva this 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 situation, this case, this Caton case was completely forgot about uh, for decades until we came along and kind of brought it back to the forefront. Not that I'm taking credit for that, but that's that's what happened. People had kind of forgot about it. And then hearing about it again, you had all these people come forward with sightings, you know, from the 70s. We had people contacting us on Facebook and everything that had, had sightings back in the 70s who mm-hmm. would never spoken about it before. So it... it kind of brings it back to the forefront for people
0: well sometimes people are just waiting for someone else to come forward and say something and to share their story so that they you know they don't look like the crazy one coming out there first and saying you wouldn't believe i saw this monster and and i know that it's something that you you have to also as or maybe you don't i mean maybe as a documentarian you're willing to just kind of give everybody their say do you have to determine the uh, you know, the veracity of some of these stories people are telling you, or do you, do you make the determination of who you think is just looking to become part of the legend and who actually had an actual sighting?
2: I, w- I love this question because this is something I really struggled with. In Minerva, um, you know, there's no way to really determine the, the veracity of anyone's sighting in a way. I can, you know, kind of go by gut and all that kind of stuff, but I don't know how much you can trust that anyway. Um, but on Minerva it was pretty straightforward we had some people tell us their stories you know and and um but but Whitehall was different we had a guy come forward that gave us a uh, a report about his actual involvement with the A-bear incident this guy had never spoken to anyone but he claimed to have been there on the night of the initial encounter and i didn't know what to do with the story we we interviewed him and you know we sat him down we interviewed him and afterward i said i i honestly don't know if this guy's telling us the truth or not and i actually talked to lyle blackburn about the case and i said I, I don't know what to do here like i don't know if i should leave him out of the movie because i can't for myself determine if this guy's telling the truth or if i put it in there and lyle said if if he's telling you his story it it's really no different from anyone else's story if you're if you're on the fence about him possibly lying, put it in the movie that you don't know if it's a truthful story or not. Not that I'm saying he he was lying, but, you know, like you just – you never know. So in the movie, the way it plays out – have you seen the movie? Did you guys get to get to watch?
0: No, I just found the link actually in the email exchange earlier. Okay. <laughs> so I haven't
2: okay. seen it yet. Okay, cool. Um uh, we basically put him on camera, let him tell a story, and then afterward we had the narration kind of go into the fact that we have tried our best to verify this. You know, we, we tried to get a hold of other witnesses, um, but unfortunately we, we were totally unable to get some of those original witnesses to talk to us, um, due to, in some cases they had passed away, and in other cases they're just not talking about the case. So, um, That was how we handled that particular situation, and and the only reason I went ahead and stuck it in was because if he is telling the truth, his sighting report will uh, kind of piece a couple things together as far as how the creature went from one location to another.
0: I mean, it is, though, because even if you are making something up and even if you are trying to insert yourself into the experience there's a reason why you're trying to do that and, and I think that that becomes if you're going to look at the forest for the trees that becomes part of the everlasting impact of those sightings the fact that it becomes something that people want to be associated with and want to be part of so sure. while, it, while it may not help convince viewers of you know whether or not this legend and and, and this this rash of sightings is actually true it does kind of give you some insight into human nature and and, and into why these type of sightings are something that people want to go out and have and want to go out and share and why people watch shows like all these bigfoot shows that are on television
2: (laughs) yeah and 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 in the case that i'm that i'm talking about the interview subject was one of the most emotional that i've ever spoken to Um, which again doesn't necessarily mean he's telling the truth but i can tell you from sitting in the room with him he also brought his father who would have been present not not present when this the sighting happened but he was present that evening when the boy got home uh, he was a boy back then. He's a man now. But he, as a boy, he came home. He told his dad about it. And he's been telling his dad the same story since he was a kid. And his dad was there and vouched for him, told us that, you know, I was, I was there. He's been saying the same thing since then. This guy was extremely emotional. He was shaking all through the interview. Um, you know, kind of got extremely emotional when he was giving us physical details of the creature. Um, almost broke down into tears a couple times. Uh, I didn't get... A, you know, this guy's telling us a story uh, kind of vibe off of him. Mm-hmm. But there was there was just not enough corroborating, you know, witness testimony to say this guy was definitely there. Because he's never been mentioned in anything, any story about Whitehall. Um, the, the other guy that was in the car with him is the brother of one of the kids who who was there for those initial encounters. And they've never mentioned this kid before. So that, I will say that with the Whitehall case, not trying to get off on a tangent here, but with the Whitehall case, there's a lot to it that has not been uncovered. Um, and I'm I'm actually saddened to say I think some of it is going to die off, you know, in the next five, ten years uh, for good. We'll probably never know some of the, the encounters that took place out there uh, back in 76 just because of uh, certain people not wanting to share, you know, this information that they have. I'm well, trying to be delicate about this because right, this no, is a really odd case.
0: I understand, and, and certainly coming up in the next hour, I want to get into the more of the meat and the potatoes of the case, uh, mm-hmm. but just kind of analyzing the way that you come at this as a filmmaker. Now, the same, but on the other side of the coin, you know, you have people too that you know we have the D- the Dover Demon story here in Massachusetts yeah. as being one of those kind of one off things that that became uh, a local legend, and and one of the witnesses of that especially in recent years you've seen a lot of uh bill bartlett around here talking about it and and speaking with a lot of media outlets so eventually at some point you have to wonder with some of these eyewitnesses does it become a little cottage industry for them and do they feel the need to keep kind of performing for those that keep in coming and asking the questions so does that enter in your mind at all too when you're talking to some of these main eyewitnesses at lg you know how much of this is them just trying to make sure that i do want to go forward with making a film and featuring them in it
2: yeah, and how much of it is actually coming from an honest place, and not just repeating their story? Like, or, I or filling th- in th- gaps
0: too to make it sound right. more interesting. Yeah,
2: right. It always throws up red flags for me when I see people that constantly give the same testimony, like to, word for word. Um, it, which I don't know that that's there's anything to that, but that's just me. I just I'm always kind of bothered by it. <laughs> I want to hear like an honest telling, you know, right right from the heart kind of thing. Um, I I I have always had a hard time with thinking that I am any kind of, you know, psychological expert and can really tell when people are telling the truth or not. But I totally, I totally agree with you in in our case. We have so far in the first two movies we've done, we've actually run into the opposite thing where the people that are the main characters in our movies, they, they either haven't told their, their story a whole lot on camera. Like in the case of Brian Gosselin, I think he's been in monster quest and then he was on some show that ran in the nineties. Um, but he hasn't spent a ton of time, you know, retelling this story. And then in Minerva Monster Case, uh, the Catons had never come on camera. They didn't want anything to do with camera. It took me, uh, two to three months of getting to know the family and building a relationship there to convince them to talk to us on camera in the first place. And, and even then, um, I don't know if I told the story on the, on the show back that, back when I was on it before, but even after I had convinced him the day we showed up, to interview Howie Caton, he actually opened the door and said, "I changed my mind. Uh, I don't want to be on camera." And then I had to take another half hour, uh, just convincing him it's it's okay. You know, we're just going to sit you down. It's going to be real quick. Like that's something I'm discovering is with hesitant witnesses, you don't want to spend a ton of time. You know, as much as you need that information, you can't expect them to stand in front of a camera for. You know, three, four hours or something—that it's just just not going to happen.
0: Especially because they could probably sit there for three or four hours and and give you uh, great stuff, and then they feel like it went on a little bit too long, and they get cold feet right in the middle and tell you you can't use anything that you've already filmed.
2: Yeah, yeah, it, getting those release forms is vital. Um, <laughs> it's terrifying as yes, well. You, so you sign like, first.
0: You sign yeah. before you talk.
2: <laughs> yeah, um, we had a we had an incident with when we were filming Whitehall where one of the witnesses had for some reason he was under the impression he wasn't going to have to sign a release um and it took me about 40 minutes after the interview just talking to him to get him to sign the release i thought we were i thought we were screwed honestly wow. and it was the most important interview in the movie
0: well i'm glad that it worked out then
2: <laughs> yeah terrifying
0: so but now does it help though when when you're trying to convince people for this film does it help that you now have minerva monster which has been praised by critics and and people love it and and it's gotten a lot of positive reaction so now you can show them and say no look here is kind of how we approach this so you don't have to worry that we're not going to sensationalize your story we're not looking to try to you know make you into looking like some sort of crazy nut we're going to treat this topic and you with a great deal of respect
2: yeah it does actually i sent Copies of the movie to um, Bill Brand and Brian Gosselin and Paul Bartholomew, who are, who are all focused in, um, you know, in Beast of Whitehall, and they all you know kind of appreciated the no nonsense approach to it um i did you know assure them listen this is our this was our first movie our next one's going to be better our next one after that's going to be even better but they they definitely it's it's easy when you've got this kind of movie too cuz we don't sensationalize stuff like you said it's it's just not in my wheelhouse to over ties or make things you know to, not the way they were i not that i Have a problem with the kind of You know the campier kind of approach To the subject but um, I believe that there's a ton of people Out there who are interested in cryptozoology and, And especially Bigfoot Who don't outwardly show that because of the fact that they're so embarrassed because of some of the cryptid entertainment that is out there so if we can if we can bring an air of realism to it that isn't trying to convince people that bigfoot's real or i mean because i'm something of a skeptic myself so um that's kind of what i bring to it and if we can bring that to them i think then you know people who otherwise would probably shun this type of thing actually are are really enjoying it like that was something we saw with Minerva Monster um when we when we did screenings around the state or library showings we always had multiple people at every event that had no prior interest in Bigfoot who were there just because they thought the story sounded interesting and then they remembered as a kid that they were kind of into the subject and so they showed up and they watched it and they were like, okay, I can, I can be into this without looking like a, a crazy person.
0: And, uh, and you mentioned, you know, camp, and, and I think campy only works, uh, and I, I hate to ask you a loaded question with only a minute left to go here, but you know, I think campy only works, too, when you're dealing with a topic that a lot of people know already, and, and you're taking these stories that are probably the first time anybody's heard of these creatures, and so you have to kind of treat it with, with some of that respect in order to get people to take the story seriously
2: yeah and and the fact that it's non fiction i mean you can you can definitely bring an air of camp to some stories even non fiction stories but with with Whitehall, which um you know the focus of the movie isn't just the beast but also the deaths of some of the main witnesses in the film there's there was no way for me to really you know camp that up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll talk more about, as I said, you know, the actual details of that case coming up in the next hour. And if you would like to get involved in the conversation, you can call in at 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also text us questions at 67664 just use the keyword WBSM in order to start off your message so that it filters into us here. You can also post it up on Twitter using the hashtag Spooky Live, and uh, you can follow our guest, Seth Breedlove, on Twitter at Seth Breedslove, and you can check out SmallTownMonsters.com during the break as well. So we are going to take a break for the news, but when we come back on the other side, we're going to get much more in-depth into the Whitehall case. We'll also pick Seth's brain a little bit about Boggy Creek and find out what the plans are for that film as well, and... Certainly, go online to smalltownmonsters.com, and you can watch Minerva Monster for yourself as well. sounds like a great plan for a freezing cold Sunday if you're looking for something to do nice and warm inside. We'll be back in just a moment. Of Spooky South Coast, Tim Weisberg, along with Stephanie Burke and science advisor Matt Moniz. And we are broadcasting live on Spooky TV at spooky and also now at spookytv.com because the silent assassin Matt Costa has decided to become an inter- internet entrepreneur.
1: He really has.
0: And has now purchased spookytv.com.
1: He's really getting fancy with all the stuff he's doing for
0: us. We, somebody else owned it though, and we, I believe, we tried to make an offer on it. And the person wasn't interested. So I think what happened is maybe they just never, re, you know, decided to...
1: They probably didn't renew, renew
0: yeah. it. Renew and, it, and he took it over.
1: It's better news for us, right?
0: Somebody yeah. s- sent me an email this week asking if we were still interested in buying SpookySelf.com. I was like, we were never interested in buying SpookySelf.com. And that's weird. Nor am I sending a Nigerian Prince my bank account info.
1: No. Weren't we talking about that last night?
0: Yeah, so, well, there's a, apparently there's an astronaut now that's stuck up in space that needs everybody yes. to send the money to... Come back down. So.
1: Sure,
0: but uh, the uh, the biggest problem though with uh, with Spooky TV is that you know we we always seem to run into these glitches. Right. But tonight we're actually able to overcome it. So we just have the one screen up there, but it's working now. So it's, you can I do watch it. SpookyTV if you want to check that out. And of course, uh, we try to put for those of you out there who have been emailing me, we try to put the video archives up on YouTube. But the problem is we don't always get the video to save after the show right. so just because it's streaming live it doesn't mean that we're actually able to save it afterwards we're working on having some redundancies to make sure that that works but that takes money yes it does and we don't get paid for doing the show right so if you want to make a donation Tim at com. if you want to send it via PayPal or you can go to GoFundMe.com slash SpookySouthCoast and we'll be happy to accept. or maybe you want to donate some equipment Right. We'll take that, too. Or cookies. Be careful, though. <laughs> don't always take food from listeners. I it's don't. not always the best idea. Trust I me. I don't.
1: I don't want to know why you said that. but I've, I've had a few things. Really?
0: Over the years. There's one lady, uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember her name, who makes some great, great food and drops it off at the station all the time. Mm-hmm. Her stuff is phenomenal. Really? I keep trying to tell her, like, you know, if you ever want to make anything and leave it on a Saturday night, we'd be more Perfect. than happy. We'll clean the dishes afterwards. So we are talking with our guest Seth Breedlove tonight. Uh, you can check out his website smalltownmonsters dot com. Follow him on Twitter at Seth Love and at Small Town Monsters. It's just S M L, Town Monsters, and uh, you can find out about some of the great work that they have coming up on the new film that will be released on April Fool's Day. And Seth, is that was that date kind of uh, you know an intentional <laughs> nod or? No, not at all. No.
2: When when I think the first newspaper article that I saw uh, from New York that ran that, uh, it was just full of comments from people uh, mocking that date. No, the reason I had to do that is at the end of April, we're we're going to film uh, Boggy Creek Monster. So I, I knew I had to leave a window between when that came out and when the other came out. And the other thing is we have, like, film festivals um, that we submitted to that i I know at least two of them were doing during April, so um I had to clear space, so it basically just came down to let 's just put it out the first day of April honestly it 's premiering in Whitehall on April second so I should have just i should have just said April second so i didn 't have to. You know, deal with the April Fool's jokes. So,
0: so if people decide to, to rent a streaming video on April first and they go to play it, it's not going to start off and show you like, you know, thirty seconds of the film and then launch into, you know, uh some Rick Astley video.
2: No. Kinda, Maybe
0: you're not, you're I'm, not gonna rick now, roll everybody? Well now that you've said it, I mean rick rolling people
2: <laughs> with with that would be absolutely amazing. Like they pay eight ninety nine for the movie or whatever on Vimeo and then it's just yeah. That, that would be fantastic. Well, I'm sure well, we'd gain so many viewers, too.
0: If you want, we can embargo this uh, podcast until after that so we won't ruin the joke. Yeah, yeah, hold it until after the first. So, now, how did you find out about the Whitehall case? I mean, obviously, you know, you're researching a lot of these different cases. And if you dig deep enough, this is one that comes up. But how did it come across your radar?
2: Um, the... the- Case was one I'd always been aware of because of the Monster Quest episode that, that talked about it. Um, but the there was a screening that came up in the Adirondacks last July. So we knew we were going to New York to do this screening. And I was like, listen, instead of, you know, we, we had the entire summer already scheduled out with screenings in, in Ohio and library presentations and kind of, you know, the typical stuff you do as an indie filmmaker trying to get some sort of, Uh, quote-unquote paranormal film out. Um, So the fact that we had this uh, New York screening scheduled, I was like, as long as we're doing it, why don't we shoot a movie while we're there? So uh, Whitehall being close to where we were going was kind of a natural fit. And um, what was strange about it was the day we decided, uh, the day... We had like definitively decided we were we were going to Whitehall. It was the day the movie premiered at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, like 500 people. Um, that morning, when we got into the uh, venue, one of the guys came up to me and he was like, "Hey, did you see the news?" And I was like, "No." And he said, "The um, the primary Whitehall witness passed away today." So we we actually lost Paul Gosselin the same day. We had decided to make the movie. And at that point, it kind of looked like no one at that point wanted to make the movie except me. Um, I was still like, I, I really think there's still a story here. We'll find a way to fill in the holes. But I really didn't want to lose Paul's brother, Brian, um, and and not have a chance to have him tell the story, too. And, you know, some of this is about getting these people on camera to document the story. Um, you know, while they're still alive, because everyone's getting older and and that kind of thing. So it's kind of in a way we always say it's like a race against time, in a way. So,
0: well, and, and so now when you're trying to put it all together, uh, you know what, what's? I assume the impetus for the, you know, the starting point for the film would be the starting point of the sightings, which would be with these these three then teenagers that uh, were driving down the road.
2: Well, we, you know, we have a format that I had set. In the in the original book proposal and Minerva kind of follows it, but I didn't edit Minerva. So if I had edited Minerva, Minerva would be a, a far different film. But I didn't edit Minerva, so so Whitehall took on finally kind of my original vision for for Small Town monster. So the film kind of opens with a uh, it's a three chapter structure, and the first chapter focuses on Whitehall and introducing you to the town, and then also this history of sightings that goes back before the a bear incident uh, which is what people think of when they think of boyhall they think of a bear and you know these these cops and all these kids seeing this bigfoot on a back road but there's actually this long history of sightings there um and And so that's kind of the first chapter is setting up look there's there's a history here. Chapter two is the a stuff, and that's the bulk of the movie. I'd say it's like twenty twenty five minutes of the movie and then the final chapter is kind of bringing you up to date on what's going on today, how the town views it, how their views changed, that kind of thing so so the the impetus for the for bringing us to do the story was definitely the a incident, but I'm as fascinated by the Adirondacks and the way they view Bigfoot and how they because one thing we learned about the Adirondacks and, and New York in general, and we're still learning, is they, the typical local New Yorkers, a lot of them are still very embarrassed by the subject of Bigfoot. Really? So, yeah. So it's it's just it's one of those things where like we have to really struggle to get people to talk to us on camera about Bigfoot sightings, um, due to the ridicule factor.
0: You would think, though, with all the attention being paid to it now and, you know, it's not like it's on these, uh, you know, weird channels that nobody's watching. There's Bigfoot shows on on Animal Planet and and, and people are, you know, uh, coming across them. Pretty frequently on on the television dial, well, dial like they have a dial anymore, but you know what I mean. So people are actually seeing these bigfoot documentaries with more regularity, or, or these you know unscripted shows. So you think that they'd be more open to the topic of it, even if they're not saying you know well it definitely happened, at least embracing the idea of there being a legend. Yeah, they're not. Um, I, it's funny. T- it's, it's actually to the point where
2: we had, you know, it's there's narration in this one. Uh, Minerva had no narration, but in this one, to fill in some of the holes in the story, you know, due to the passing of some of our main witnesses, um, I actually scripted narration, and we had an entire little probably minute-long section in the movie that talks about the Adirondacks and, and kind of the way the culture is and how it's been influenced by Bigfoot sightings. And I had it written originally where it was like, you know, the, the region has embraced the the long history of, of Bigfoot lore or whatever. And then after I watched it about 30 times, I was like, this is a, this is like a downright, bald face lie i mean i need to i have got to rewrite this so actually just within the last like three weeks i rewrote that entire session so now it's like well the reason region hasn't at all embraced you know the 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 cultural history that sort of thing i mean it's just it is very odd when you get down there uh or up there for me people do not want to talk about it um dan gordon was a, a police officer who was uh, extremely tied to the To the uh, Whitehall Bigfoot Case and he was on Finding Bigfoot And he's in the, the Monster Quest episode And all that kind of stuff he passed away Last year as well Um and he, his son, I actually spoke to on the phone for about two hours, and his son told me he's seen things, he's talked, I'm not saying he's had a sighting, but he's seen things and talked to people who claimed to have sightings, and he said, I'll never talk about it on camera just because of the ridicule factor. He works in a, a jail, he's a warden, and he said he didn't want anything to do with, with Bigfoot.
0: Well, you mentioned that these sightings have been going on for, for quite a while there. I mean, how far back are we talking? Are we talking about back to Native American times? Yeah,
2: Native, Native American legends. Um, and you do run into a gray area here. I don't put a ton of stock in some of those Native American legends that people, you know, think are Bigfoot. The Stonish Giants, you always hear referenced as as definitively some sort of Bigfoot, uh, you know, legend. And we do mention it in our film. I, I personally think that's not that's referring to a creation myth i don 't think it has much to do with with Bigfoot, but um, there were there were stories about these creatures that lived in the mountains whose eyes glowed like coals, something like that. I think that 's the line um, their eyes glowed like coals, and you know in the in Beast of Whitehall, what you 'll constantly hear from anyone who saw the creature is that it had glowing red eyes, so you're hearing these native legends and you know, settlers talking about these creatures that that had these glowing eyes, and then you're hearing people from the 70s and up to today talk about these creatures with glowing red eyes. So there's obviously a history there of, of that. Um, and then you've got sightings that happened in and around Whitehall, the um, you know, in years prior to the Abare incident, um, and those do get discussed briefly towards the end of the film. And then we also have a major sighting that took place. In Whitehall, about a mile away, maybe even less geographically from A Bear Road, where the you know major incident that takes up the bulk of the film happened, we had a sighting that took place on a golf course, uh, about a mile from there, the year prior to the A Bear incident, and we were actually able. The, the the man who had that sighting actually passed away a few years ago, but we were able to get him in the film because someone had interviewed him on a local TV station, and we were able to get the rights to. To use that uh, interview, so he is in the film talking about that sighting, which happened the year prior.
0: What's uh, what's Bigfoot's handicap?
2: Uh, if I knew anything about golf, I could make a great joke here.
0: I, that's, I, I that's struggled.
2: That's all I know about golf. So yeah, for for a second I th- I was gonna go for it, but I was like I w- I have no idea what I'm talking about, and it's just gonna make me look like a fool. So you,
0: you can tell Seth listens to the show; he knows me too well. Yeah. So the the but you know having all these sightings build up over time, had, these uh, witnesses, the the three teens who were the on the a bear incident, had they heard stories about this creature prior to their encounter?
2: Uh, that 's a subject of debate between myself and my producer because he 's convinced i 'm misremembering this, but i am i 'm convinced that at one point someone we were speaking to off the record told us that the boys were actually going on this particular road were driving that particular road the night that that their sighting happened because it was rumored to be a place where you could see monsters hmm. so I don't know if I'm misremembering or if I heard something and I just and, you know you hear you take in so much information on this stuff that some of it gets lost but I'm I swear that someone told me that that, that was going around the high school at the time that this was actually a place and it, to me there's nothing unusual about that necessarily um it's a if you look at a map the the Pulteney River surrounds this area where the sighting took place. It it actually, the the river kind of runs in a circular pattern around this particular place. And the Pulteney River is a huge river that runs from Vermont down into New York. Um, there's dense forest around there. There's bear dens all over the place, which could be an alternate, you know, if, if you're skeptical, you want to say they misidentified a bear, you can although we have on record three or four of the people that saw this thing saying it was not a bear. Um, but there's definitely this, there was, in my mind, there was something about a history of monster sightings in that area that the kids were aware of. But I could be wrong.
0: So but at the very least, you know, that these creatures have been seen in, uh, seen in the area, so there is kind of a, at least somewhat of a culture of it, so that when these three teens come forward with what happened to them, how, how did that happen? How did, how did people first begin to find out about their encounter? Well, they found out about the encounter
2: because it hit the paper, which you know is pretty typical with this stuff. Once the police are involved, these kids were driving on a back road late at night. They they see a creature. They go into town. They get one of the boy's father, who was a police chief, and they come back out to the to this road out in the middle of nowhere with the police chief and eight other law officers. So there's eleven people out at it, at a bear road that night that all saw this creature. Um, Including eight members of law enforcement So um, You know that's kind of once that happened It hit the newspapers Local papers started covering it And then it it, You know know what's strange about the case is I don't think it was like the Minerva case It's funny the Minerva case was this big story You know it was national It was international It was being covered by news media from all over the globe And it was forgotten about completely After a couple years Uh, And and then you've got Whitehall, where, to to my mind, it, it doesn't seem like it blew up. It doesn't seem like it was on the AP or any of that kind of stuff. And yet we're still talking about it today, and it's being featured on Episodes of Monster Quest, and they've got, you know, a little statue in the town. And I I do think that since the Bear incident and since that kind of 76 flap, um, it seems like the community has tried to embrace it. There at least Whitehall's trying to kind of embrace the the Bigfoot phenomena This this actually just this past weekend they had a Bigfoot festival there, um a wintertime Bigfoot festival. So and and you know, we're trying to work out something where we can actually come up there and show the movie on April 2nd and kind of coordinate some sort of uh, Beast of Whitehall day kind of deal. Sorry. So it,
0: I'm sorry, go ahead. But it's
2: definitely affected the culture, um, and seems to do so more every year. I think there's, you know, they're starting to see the tourism value in it too.
0: So when this does hit the newspaper, I mean, what's the reaction of those in town? uh, About the, do they think it's just the kids telling stories? I mean, we're talking about 1976, uh, yeah. And you know, high school kids at the time were kind of known for uh, maybe partaking in some. Recreational activities that, yeah. that might make them see things that might not have been there.
2: Yeah, um, they they were mocked pretty pretty badly from what I could could find out uh ridiculed horribly and and the police department was as well i mean this was not something that anyone was taking seriously um the first you know one of the early newspaper articles that ran about it with the headline was something like uh little green men from mars or or big hairy beasts something like that and so so the local media wasn't taking it seriously um people locally were kind of making it into a joke the the law enforcement uh, from what I've been told by Brand gosselin, gosselin who was on the you know the Whitehall PD at the time he was told to shut up about it that they weren't supposed to talk about it to anyone um, they weren't supposed to go investigate it, which is interesting because he went out to a bear the very next night to investigate it um, they were told to leave it alone you guys this is you know not something we want to be known for um which is you know, there was, there was a lot of stuff going on in Whitehall in 76. This is The A.B.A. incident happened in the midst of a huge UFO flap that lasted about the same amount of time. It was a couple of weeks, right around the same time that all this was going on with the the Bigfoots. And then they've also got, I don't know if you know this, but like Lake Champlain butts right up against Whitehall. They're, they're wow. Whitehall sits on the shores of... Lake Champlain, which is, of course, Champ the Lake Monster. Mm-hmm. And then there's also, um, when we were there the last time, we found out that there's a history of Thunderbird sightings in the woods around there. Like people, two, two police officers uh, claim to have seen a, a pterodactyl, basically, in the woods. So hmm. it's almost like some sort of uh, perfect storm of unusual activity going on there.
0: It's like its own Bridgewater Triangle out there. So yeah. with uh, with all these different types of sightings then, I mean, uh, and this might be a little bit more of a, a deeper question than, than you want to address in terms of this case, but do you see a reason why there's all of these different types of creatures that are seen in that area? Is is there some sort of, uh, I, I don't want to call it a, a vortex or, or call it a, some kind of a, a slip into another dimension because that just seems so out there, but there's got to be a reason why all these strange creatures are, are seen up there.
2: Well, I think you've got a really, um, you know, sparsely populated, densely forested region with with massive lakes and and major waterways. You know, the the Hudson River runs through the Adirondacks. The Pultney River is right near there. Um, just to to me, what what made the most sense to me is that some of this is misidentification. You you've, you've got to believe that you know the Thunderbird sightings, especially from what I could hear. Uh, or tell about them. And I didn't get to speak to the witnesses. Both witnesses have passed away since. But um to me, you know, you might just have to chalk that up as either misidentification or maybe there was a pterodactyl that had somehow... <laughs> You know, miraculously survived and was hanging out in the Adirondacks with the UFOs. That does get bizarre, um, and it's an area that I try to stay away from because it's it's one of those things where I'm focusing on Bigfoot to bring in the UFO element is like I'm, I feel like I'm trying to solve one mystery with another mystery, and it's it's just never going to happen. The Champ thing, uh, I love lake monsters, so I I actually would love to do some sort of movie about that. That story of the Lake Champlain monster. Um, so I don't know. You know, like, I'm like everyone else. I don't have an answer. I just know that that is a really isolated kind of area, and especially the Adirondacks. The Whitehall is outside of the Adirondacks. It's at the base of the Adirondack Mountains, but it's still, you know, close enough to the really uh, isolated kind of areas that you could say, well, there could be a lot of undiscovered kind of creatures living in a, in a place like that.
0: Well, I mean, I hate to keep pressing you on the issue either, but where there's a lot of these cryptid sightings, there is a lot of UFO crossover. So, I mean, is that something that you think that maybe somewhere down the line you might look into deeper, or are you trying to stay more based in the, I don't want to call it more the possible reality of these cryptids, but it's a lot easier for people to digest the idea of a Bigfoot creature being something that we just haven't discovered yet than it is to think that it might have something to do with whatever a UFO is.
2: Yeah, I I love the stories about UFOs and all that stuff. I, I'm fascinated by that element, and especially because the Minerva case had it, too. So this is the second in a row where we've covered these huge flaps that also involve, you know, UFO sightings. And in this case... I mean, this was this was so dramatic. There, there was actually a UFO that supposedly landed in a lady's front yard right downtown Whitehall, and I'm talking like it smack dab in the middle of the city. And when local PD came to investigate it after she called, they did find some sort of weird scorched circular patch in her front yard. Um, so I'm definitely fascinated by the UFO angle. I just don't. It's it's like I mean, it's the same way I am with with Bigfoot. I don't have the answers. I'll I'll. I would never shirk, you know, actually covering that element to the story if it fits within the film we're making. Mm-hmm. But in in the Whitehall case, we did actually kind of leave out the UFO stuff. I think Paul mentions it briefly in the film. But we didn't have a single witness, you know, that said I saw a uh, UFO that we could get to to speak to us. And we didn't really have anyone else to speak about the UFO Angle, So I think for us to just kind of, sh- you know, shove it in there would have felt a little out of place. But we did, it is mentioned, and then on the DVD there's going to be kind of an uncut interview with Paul where he'll talk about all that stuff. So oh,
0: nice. So when the sightings are taking place, when, when, when the Bear incident happens, how many more sightings, you know, you talk about a rash of sightings, but how many more witnesses were there that, that encountered some sort of a creature around that same time?
2: Well, yeah, this goes back to that thing that I said earlier about some of the information that's going to pass on pretty soon here. There, there's there's a, uh, some people in that area who investigated these sightings back in the 70s who know a lot, who will probably never kind of pass on the information, which is unfortunate, but it's, it's just the way it is. Um, there were a lot. From what we can find out, obviously, on the night of this particular incident, anywhere from 11 to 14 people had a sighting of this creature off of Ebert Road. Um, But the the sightings go on all that week. So you've got um, that sighting, and then the next night you've got Brian Gosselin and uh, a state highway patrolman have their own sighting in the same field um, on the opposite side of the road the very next night. So... And, and Brian's in the film. He's kind of the focal point of the middle chapter because, you know, he's, he's still alive. He was willing to come on camera and that kind of thing. So we, we have him talking about this sighting and it's a, it's a pretty dramatic sighting. He was alone in a field. I, I sent you guys the poster earlier. That, that kind of image I think is kind of based on what, what Brian saw that night. Um, but he has a sighting the next night with another with another guy. There's obviously cars moving up and down that road, too, so you don't know how many people saw something and never reported it. And then you've got um, kind of vague stories coming from one of the investigators who was there at the time who, you know, wouldn't give us details but knows that there were multiple sightings. And then we had a guy named Frank McFerrin who lived – on the back side of Aber Road, there's another road that kind of runs perpendicular to Hebert. Um I don't know what the distance from one to the other would be, but in the film we have a map, and you can clearly see where they kind of, you know, they, they actually, there's a fork, and Abear goes one way, and Carver's Falls Road goes the other way, and this guy lived off of Carver's Falls Road. And he called the police and fired, filed a police report that he had fired shots at an unknown creature, as the police report put it. He had fired shots at an unknown upright walking creature um, and thinks he hit, thought he hit it. So, And that was just days after this happened. And you've got other police officers that investigate. Um, Glenn LaRose was a Whitehall PD officer. He was also the uncle of one of the boys that was at the sighting. He was uh, so fed up with the amount of ridicule that, that was kind of being, you know, foisted on these kids. That he went up and investigated the, uh, sighting location to see if he could find any, any proof or evidence of the creature's existence and found a, the only casted track of the Abear creature. Um, he found a, a track not far at all from where the sighting took place, uh, down in a gully. So, so there was a lot going on during that week and obviously you've got local papers running stories on it too kind of mocking the police and and also covering for them strangely enough the the there's a, a news report that runs in one of the local pay- papers that kind of retracts a story that ran the day before that said the police officers that were present for the sighting were off were on duty at the time and then they run it the next day saying they were off duty and basically what they were doing is they didn't want the police officers to get in trouble for being on duty and investigating a, I mean, cause it was almost like all of Whitehall PD came out to look for a, for a monster. So they oh, were, sure,
1: yeah,
2: yeah. so they were kind of covered that up. And it's a, it, it definitely seems like it was a very, you know, kind of a, a flap that took place over this one week. Although we do have, you know, Dan Gordon has his sighting in 82 of a creature, a, a gaunt, mangy animal is how he put it. Um, that he saw while he was on a routine patrol outside of Whitehall. You've got other people. I, when I was in Whitehall, I spoke to a guy who was um, hunting with a friend, not far at all from Hebert. And he said that, actually, he said it was about two miles from Aber Road. And they saw a, a upright walking silhouette. That's all he said. He didn't say, you know, but he said it had to have been eight or nine feet tall, and whatever it was, it scared their dog so bad, so bad that it took off and ran about two miles back to their car. Um, so he's, you know, there's obviously a, a long history there. It's just you can't get people to talk about
0: it. Well, I saw one blog post uh, recounting the incident that mentions, you know, the idea of shoddy investigations and an unwillingness to pursue. Uh, the truth too far. And, and is this going into what you're saying, a, a combination of, you know, they're trying to cover up the idea that the police were looking into it just for fear of any kind of ridicule and, and afraid of having it become something that stained the area. Is that what kind of went on and that might be what the article is referencing? Or, or do you think there was something that went a little bit deeper of, uh, you know, needing to to keep a cover-up going? See, I don't think there was a cover-up. Um, I, know, I know Brian
2: Gosselin, who was on the Wayhall PD believes more in the cover up angle. I don't think he thinks it was a In fact, I think on camera he said it, it wasn't a a some sort of, you know, organized governmental cover up. But it might have been a thing where the town was so worried about embarrass further embarrassment that they were like, "Stop looking into this. Quit quit going out and looking for Bigfoot. Um just do your job." And so so that could have been what they were referencing. I think I think there was a lot of um, interest, though, on the part of Wilfred Gosselin, who was the police chief, to to find out what was going on. Um, Brian said that he became kind of obsessed with it. I know his son Paul did um, after his initial sighting, and they were trying to cover all the angles. What you know, what this could have been, but obviously they're as limited as anyone in the amount of time and money they could put into, you know, trying to find out what was going on. And if it was a creature that was kind of moving through the area, you know, it was following the river maybe, and who knows why it hung out in this one area for about a week. But um, one one thing Paul uh, Bartholomew did tell us was that after that uh, police report where where Frank McFerrin fired shots at it, the reports f- for then at that point kind of died off. So that was kind of the incident that ends the Bear incident was the Frank McFerrin shooting. So you don't know if... If maybe this guy did hit the creature and it was like, all right, I'm out, peace, and and took off into the woods and didn't come back. or But that does seem to be the incident that kind of bookended the A-Bear.
0: So, so so that closes out the A-Bear incident, but have there been other flaps and other sightings in the years since?
2: I don't know that there have been flaps, but there's I would say there's consistent sightings. Paul, the number that Bill Brand gave me tonight was 240 sightings, uh, which is obscene. I don't know. I mean that is an obscene amount of sightings, and especially if you're talking about an area like the Adirondacks where there aren't a lot of people. Um, so if you if you start trying to statistically figure out, well, how many people are having sightings? It's two hundred two hundred forty sightings in I don't know what is you know what the time frame is there, but that's a lot of lot of sighting reports. And then Paul Bartholomew gave us a number that's in the film, and his is a hundred and some. I can't remember exactly what it is, but it's a hundred and some. So. And I would imagine there's some crossover between, you know, reports there. Some of the same reports came to the the same guys. But I would still say between the two of them, there's probably 300 reports that have come in from the Adirondacks and and also into Vermont. Those guys get into Vermont a lot too. So I I think there's an ongoing situation there. Like I said, Dan Gordon sighting was in '82, but it just keep looking for that glowing red eyes thing, because it keeps coming up.
0: I was going to say, yeah, you mentioned the glowing red eyes, but what are some of the other physical characteristics of what it was that these witnesses have seen? I mean, obviously, you know, you're expecting something of of, uh, of an increased size, you know, larger than, than, a, than a normal adult man. Well, the,
2: the A-Bear creature is a little different from, like, Dan Gordon sighting in 82, which was a, a smaller kind of... He said it looked like it was, you know, starving or something, a gaunt, mangy animal. But what people saw in the field... In 76, it was a, a, you know, what's your typical Bigfoot-type creature, uh, what you would imagine it would look like. It was around seven to eight feet tall, covered in black fur, um, had glowing red eyes. Its uh, arms hung down, you know, kind of not – I don't think the hands hung all the way to the knees, but, you know, kind of that kind of uh, length. And then the face, Brian says the face uh, was more man-like than ape. Hmm. Um, so – so he thought it had more of a man you know a human kind of uh characteristics than it did ape like characteristics um, which I think is echoed in one of the other interviews in the film too by the by the uh witness who I talked about earlier who we haven't been able to verify his story, but he actually said the same thing it was more of a more of a man than an ape
0: uh, well, I think that that is you know something that if you're out and encountering one of these creatures, it's got to be even more haunting to you and, and emblazon itself in your brain even more if it does have that human-like quality. Because it, you could almost convince yourself over 40 years between the time you have this sighting and the time some documentary filmmaker comes and asks you about it, you could kind of convince yourself, maybe I saw this, maybe I saw that, maybe it was a bear, maybe it was some sort of you know, lost North American giant primate. But mm-hmm. when you know that it has those human characteristics, that's going to stick in your brain even more. And that's going to make you wonder over all this time, what it was that you saw.
2: Well, yeah. And in, in, in that case, um, Brian Gosselin always gets, told us, he always gets asked, why didn't you shoot it? Cause he had his gun drawn. He was, you know, he's standing in this field. He has this encounter with this creature. He's, he's alone. It's coming toward him. He's got his gun drawn. And he said he couldn't shoot it cause it looked like a man. Mm. Um, and it, you know, at the, i definitely don 't want to spoil the end of the movie, but he he talks at the very end of the movie about how he still thinks about this incident and this creature to this day it 's from from what I can gather it 's definitely a very haunting kind of experience
0: wow i mean I, I can just imagine what that 's like when you 're looking at this thing and it 's staring at you and you 're staring at it, and that 's a decision that you have to make and uh, and, and thinking about all there 's a lot that would weigh on your mind, not only is it. Uh, survival for yourself, but also you got to think like this is something that nobody else has seen, and this is something that you know very few people have ever had an encounter with, and and it's got a weigh on you, and it's got a way on him all these years later that, you know, he still had to face that decision.
2: Yeah, and he said he said after the sighting, he got in his car and he sat there and tried to process it, mm-hmm. and I think he says he sat in the car for, for, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that before he could even move. Um, just trying to process what he'd just seen. So, you know, and you think of all the kids the night before, the three kids seeing this thing and, and the police officers also seeing it. I mean, and then to, to to actually have this sighting and then come out with it and then to find yourself just ridiculed by so many people, it's got to be, the whole experience in general has to be very traumatic. I mean, I found the same thing when we, when we made Minerva Monster, you know, they... They still look back at the Caton family. Now it's a much more positive experience because the movie has kind of shifted the local perception of them. But at the time, it was awful for them because they came forward with this sighting. And next thing you know, there's kids driving up their driveway screaming Bigfoot and all sorts of stuff, you know.
0: And it it lends so much more, uh, you know, genuineness. Uh, in my mind, because you're not dealing with people who are, you know, opening up roadside stands selling Bigfoot T-shirts. You know, mm-hmm. these are people that had something to lose back then and probably still have something to lose by sharing that story today.
2: Yeah, definitely. I, I always find the people that don't want to talk about it much more believable because, you know, they're not, they're not calling me and begging me to talk about it on camera. Um, not that I'm, you know, saying I don't believe those people, but the the people that you have to do some convincing to get to talk about it, there's there's something there. I think. Um, otherwise, why would you know? Why would they even agree to to talk to you after you you convince them? It's it's one of those things where, yeah, the the more
0: hesitant they are to talk about it,
2: the more the more I'm likely to believe.
0: I just remember when we talked with you about Minerva Monster and, and you were telling us about the plan for small-town monsters and to keep focusing on more of these, I, I kept thinking, well, how can you find a, another story that has kind of the depth of the impact of the sighting as that one did? But it seems like with Whitehall, it certainly did have that type of an impact on that community. And, uh, and even now, you know, to this day, it's still having an impact. It's still resonating there.
2: Oh, man, I love the final chapter in the movie is called To This Day. Um, So, so yeah, definitely the Whitehall case. Um, when we started out, you know, it was, it was an extremely personal film. We talk about this on the making up featurette that's on the DVD, but, um, it was, it started out as a very, uh, very much like Minerva Monster it was going to be a bigger project it was going to be a whole crew of us again making this movie it was going to be five guys we were going to make a movie and then it, there was a you know a bit of a creative disagreement on things and it turned out that the entire movie was just myself and uh, Brandon Daylo who also does the music for the movies and is a producer now um, making this movie and then my dad actually went to help with lighting so um, when I say this was a very personal project it it became kind of it consumed the latter half of 2015 and and obviously the first half of 2016 so far um so i'm very attached to the story and and even though minerva was is probably my favorite bigfoot sighting story of all time um i've completely fallen in love with like the adirondacks in that area and, and this particular story
0: so now how do you transition then from Whitehall to Boggy Creek? What, I mean, how's, how's, it, how's that going to be shaping in your mind already? Or are you just looking at this completely as, you know, each case will be its own separate entity and there, it's not really so much about worrying about thematic elements for small-town monsters overall?
2: Well, I, I always want to keep the focus on the town in some capacity and how the town responded and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The the Boggy Creek film is going to be very different because I want it to be a feature. Uh, I want it to be a feature-length movie, and we have, you know, because of this Kickstarter campaign we're running, we actually have managed to raise over one hundred and forty-six percent of our uh, initial goal wow. in in like what two weeks as of today, actually two weeks as of right now. Um, so we we're we've actually got a you know a budget, so we're running like cinema cameras and and actual equipment. I'm coming at it. As someone who just recently discovered Legend of Boggy Creek, so what fascinates me about that is the fact that here's this these stories that you know kind of center around this flap that happened back in 1971, uh, and well, they start in 67, then run up to 71, and this guy made this tiny independent horror film about it that ended up becoming a pretty you know fairly large and extremely financially successful movie, and how. That affected the town, and then how the sightings in that area don't stop then. In fact, they kind of increase. Um, So the tagline for Boggy Creek is uh, Boggy Creek Monster, the truth behind the legend. And in a way, I don't feel like outside of Lyle Blackburn's book, The Beast of Boggy Creek, I don't think we've ever gotten the real story of everything that's gone on in, in Falk, Arkansas and Arkansas in general um, that there there isn't just these, you know, this one flap of reports and then bam, it's over, but that there's this long history that goes back to the 1800s with sightings of local wild men in the swamps or in the mountains, you know, the Ozarks, and um, that the sightings still go on today you know, there's, I think Lyle told me that he's taken over 60 sighting reports from, from the Falk area and they're all fascinating I mean there's reports of juveniles and you know all kinds of stuff you you never would connect with the Falk monster legends um, so i I honestly think we're we're going to have a pretty easy time as far as getting witnesses on camera with that movie my My challenge with the boggy Creek movie is going to be finding the heart of the film. We had an easy job of that with uh, you know, the Minerva, because you got Caton's, you had the Caton family, and then with Whitehall, it was Brian Gosselin and Paul Gosselin and the Gosselin family. And with the Boggy Creek monster, the Falk monster, um, it's, it's like, well, who's at the heart of this? Like, you know, or, or is the film as much about how the town, you know, maybe the town's the main character? So I'm still in the, you know, we're still, what, two months out from filming that, and I'm just, Kind of starting to finally be able to really focus in on it. So I've been reading, uh, Lyle's book. I did a ton of research into old newspaper archives for myself to try to dig up old articles from around that area. And I'm just starting to kind of piece together in my head what the story is going to be like. But it's, it's definitely going to be a challenge. I think it's going to be the biggest challenge we've, we've faced so far.
0: Well, and, and, of course, making this one into a feature-length film, is that your plan going forward, or do you think some of these uh, will kind of go back to that short form that you've been using with the first two?
2: I, I love the short form, uh, personally, but but something like this, the you know, the Boggy Creek film, I think it kind of demands a larger format because of the fact that you've got so many sightings, and you've got this history, you know, that centers around this old movie that's so famous, and those sightings, and then you've also got all this stuff that isn't in that movie, so it's kind of a case-by-case basis, too. You know, Minerva really should have been, in my head, it should have been a 45-minute movie. It's a 55-minute movie. But um Whitehall at is just under 40 minutes and I wish Whitehall was an hour or an hour and a half because I feel like there is so much story there. But because of, you know, the, the deaths of some of the major witnesses and then other witnesses not wanting to talk about it. It's just a shorter movie because of that with, with Boggy. I definitely think, you know, we have a full movie with something like champ, you know, in my head, a champ movie would probably be a short film, maybe 25, 30 minutes, but who knows? Because originally Whitehall was supposed to be 15 minutes, and we ended up with a 40-minute short film that we just got um, actually submitted. We submitted to the Hollywood International Independent Documentary Awards and were uh, are in actually an official selection, so nice. I can mention that on the show.
0: Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, it seems like there's definitely an audience out there for these type of films, and you're hitting on people who aren't just interested in cryptids, aren't just interested in these creatures, but you're hitting on people who are interested in kind of one of the lost connections between modern society and and some of our forefathers, and and that being, you know, we didn't know back then what was going to come out of those woods, and and maybe even today we still don't know.
2: Yeah, I I had a girl tell us... um, when she was growing up, she loved it In Search of, and she said that was her favorite show, and it was, it always creeped her out, and she said, Thank you for making Sasquatch creepy again. And I was like, I guess that is kind of, I mean, in a way, that is what we're doing. You know, we're still paying respect to the, to the witnesses, but there is something extremely unnerving about a, you know, a seven to ten foot tall, uh, hairy primate with glowing red eyes staring back at you out of the woods, so. So that's kind of what we're trying to do without overtly, you know, sticking a guy in a costume and having him chase people through the woods. We want we want you to look at those woods and wonder for yourself what's behind the shadows.
0: I blame two two groups of people for making Bigfoot so damn lovable. The Jack Links company and the damn Henderson family. If they just left <laughs> Harry out in the woods when they hit him with the car, you know, yeah. we wouldn't have realized that he's nothing but a big softy so yeah
2: it is a great movie here. though
0: it is it definitely is well thank you seth for joining us and we look forward to seeing the film uh well of course you know we can see it, but the public looks forward to seeing the film on april 1st when they will not get rickrolled when they order the <laughs> film on smalltownmonsters.com and then of course paying attention for the boggy creek monster the truth behind the legend coming somewhere on down the road as well and hopefully you'll come back on and we can talk about that a little bit more in depth uh, before that one's released
2: Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks for having me on.
0: Oh, it's always great talking with you, and I love the fact that, you know, for you it's not just about the monster, but it's about the people that saw the monster, and I think that that's kind of what makes these stories uh, last for so long. So thank you for doing things the way that you do them. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. You have a great night. You too. And uh, we are just about out of time for tonight's show, but we'll be back next Saturday night when we'll talk more about the paranormal. That's what we do here on Saturday nights. And I I don't think we have any uh, Saturday nights coming up where we won't have a show. There's a few coming up where, you know, some of us might be in, some of us might be out, a lot of fluctuation in what's going on. But, uh, I like
1: that dance that you just did, too. That's, that's, that's awesome. my
0: little, that's my moving all around, because we'll be moving all around the place. Um, because, you know, there's, there's events coming up, and there's people going to different things. And, mm-hmm. But we'll work it all out. We'll make sure that we keep things rolling. Because I, I think we've already started off this year in getting back to some of what made Spooky South Coast great, and getting back into the stories themselves instead of worrying so much about all the other stuff that goes around it. So, uh, And we've got some ideas for shows coming up. Moniz gave me a great one last night that I'm going to have Chris uh, definitely pursue and because it's something that I've always been fascinated with, and I want to find out more. And Maybe you have some ideas for some shows. You can send a suggestion, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we will certainly pursue any topics that you recommend to us. You can always reach us all week long on Twitter at SpookySC, and you can follow along there and get all kinds of weird news during the course of the week. Matt Cossett does a great job. With putting out some of the stranger stories that are out there, and even just some little fun stuff once in a while, he put out the X Files clip today from that episode where Gary Shandling and Taye Leone were making the movie about Mulder and Scully, and they have this, you know, Mulder, Scully, and uh, and Skinner sitting in the bathtub with the bubble bath. So. Uh, you know, just you never know what's gonna be on our Facebook page and on our Twitter feed. So definitely follow along with us on both of those and download all the past episodes on iTunes or wherever podcasts are found. That'll do it for this week. Until next week, for Matt for Matt, for Chris for Stephanie, I'm Tim. Stay spooktacular.